Good evening. We're using technology. We'll see what happens when I move this. So far, so good. That's me, is it? Okay, good. Let's bow our heads and pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you for this awesome privilege we have of coming before you to worship you. Not because we have any right in ourselves or because we're worthy to be in your presence, but because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for your extraordinary grace. Thank you, Lord, that you share your life with us. You draw us into relationship with you, that you cause us to to know you as Father. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and guide us, make us more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I've just picked out part of that passage that we read um, about Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. Um, Most of us are so familiar with the story, we miss the impact of it. And just to remind those who may not otherwise know, the story starts with Zechariah, who is a priest. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both getting on in years. She is past childbearing age. And they have no child. They live in a culture where childlessness is a stress and a strain. Even today in our liberated days, it it can be really traumatic being childless. Zechariah is in the temple. He has a particular privilege to to be uh, in the temple, offering prayer on his own. And he has a vision of an angel. The angel says, you... Uh, your wife will have a son, you'll call him John, and he outlines his prophetic career. And Zechariah, bless him, responds in such a natural human way, he says, how can I know this is true? And it doesn't say what kind of look the angel gave him. He said, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You will be silent until this child is born. And there's poor old Zechariah, struck dumb. He comes out, there's a big crowd in the courtyard, and he's making signs he can't speak. And um, anyway, quite an incident. This is a man who has uh, lived for many years with the, the struggles and trauma of childlessness. And he goes back home, uh, his wife conceives, she becomes pregnant, and you can imagine the feelings in that household, especially for Elizabeth. And the, oh, it's true, but is it true? Will something go wrong? And she she says she hid herself away. And it must have been such an awesome time. She must have, by this time, given up hope of having a child. And this most natural thing was happening to her in a very unnatural and special way. And then where this passage comes, uh, she has given birth... And uh, then on the eighth day, they're going to name him. And you just imagine the family and friends gathering. And this is a, a very social culture. You belong to a group, to an extended family. And this is quite a remarkable birth. There is celebration for anybody's first child. But here is somebody they'd all given up on. She had given up, and the Lord had blessed her in this special way. I was just talking to Will about what it's like having your first child and, and the stress, and I mean, I hope the family helped her out, because the older you get, the less you can just handle having a child. But that aside, just the extraordinary blessing of this child that God had enabled her to have. 
You get a feeling of the, of the emotions they must have been, and the, 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 the brothers and the uncles and the aunts and the sisters gathering around, really celebrating this and sharing in her joy. And the family says, we're going to call him Zechariah. And Elizabeth says, no. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture. For us, it is normal that the parents choose the name of the child, no matter how daft. My daughter is due to have her second child in the middle of this year. And at some point, I shall go to her and say, since this is such a historic anniversary, if it's a boy, you should call him Wellington. And if it's a girl, how about Waterlooloo? And she will say, don't be stupid, Dad, I'm not doing that. And nobody would think any the worse of her. Because if your dad makes a daft suggestion, you can just... But Elizabeth wasn't living in 21st century England. It was quite normal for the family to choose the name. And these, you know, the whole family has gathered, all their relatives and connections and neighbours... And both Elizabeth and Zechariah come from priestly families. So these are not just, you know, your Joe Blows. These are priests and wives of priests who are used to being respected and obeyed and who were the guardians of the traditions of Israel. Probably Elizabeth herself, if she had a young niece who completely rejected what the family said, she'd have a thing or two to say. What? Just, we know how the story started. And we know how it ends and how John the Baptist becomes this great prophet. It's clear from what we have here, Zechariah had not passed his story on. Elizabeth knows that the name has been chosen for the baby, but he has clearly not broadcast the fact of what the angel said to him and how he answered back and how he got struck dumb. They don't know why he can't speak. Because he hasn't gone around telling everybody that it was his unbelief that brought it about. I wonder why. So there's this mysterious thing going on with this wonderful pregnancy and everyone's excited. Call him Zechariah, they will say. And Elizabeth, bless her, says no. Now, the pla- what the angel said is when the baby's born, you'll be able to speak again. Eight days have passed, he still can't speak. Zechariah does not, Elizabeth does not know when he's going to speak again. She is in a minority of one in facing all these relatives, all these noble relatives, all these important relatives. And they don't accept what she says. What are you talking about? There's nobody called Zechariah. There's nobody called John in your family. They, they reject what she says. All right, we'll ask him. He's more sensible. And, get, and then they're astonished when he says his name is John. So, I mean, they really had no idea of the backstory. But let's think our way into Elizabeth's situation. There she was, enjoying this precious, precious moment, holding a baby of her own in her own hands. And the whole family comes together and tells her what to call him, and she has to say no. Have you been in that situation where you're in a minority of one? As as human beings, conformity comes natural to us. When everybody else is saying something, the most easy thing is to go along with it. I mean, the British compromise is, all right, we'll put Zechariah on the birth certificate, but we'll call him John at home. They didn't have that kind of system. Oh, we, we fudge it, don't we? It is, it is hard to go against the majority. The good majority. I mean, these are good people. They're not hostile. They're not malicious. 
It's so natural. You have to have a very good reason to fly in the face of everybody else's opinion. We're just going to look at a brief clip. It's quite famous. It's from Candid Camera. Candid Camera was a thing back in the 50s and 60s where you had a secret camera that filmed people's behavior, and sometimes it was very instructive. And hopefully the technology will not fail. I've lost my cursor. Here we go. Volume. No, I've lost the sound. Thank you. Career. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat. <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality but little by little he looks at his watch but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall now we try it once again here's the candid subject here comes the candid camera staff three of them at least and uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. <laughs> now, here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. First, he makes a full turn to the rear, and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use... Now we'll see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment... On Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice, they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. We have to have a good reason not to conform. Now, that, that was trivial. It doesn't really matter which way you face in a lift. But it, it's very natural for us to want to blend in, to want to be accepted, to want to, to fit. And here's Elizabeth. The angel never explained why the boy had to be called John, and nothing in his subsequent story really spells out why it's so significant. But she's faced with this challenge. Why was she willing to risk the wrath of her whole family because God had spoken. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has sometimes found myself in a situation where I am the only Christian and everybody else is of one mind on something and you know you are at odds with them. Do you speak? And especially do you act in accordance with what God has said as opposed to what everybody else is saying. That's, that's what's happening in this moment. We know the story. In her case, 
She got the backup from Zechariah. Zechariah routes out the name. And then his mouth is opened and he starts prophesying and all the rest of it. So she gets confirmation. And uh, the, 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 the follow-through, I mean, even, even if some of them weren't convinced, it doesn't matter. We might find ourselves in a situation where we're in a minority of one and there is no Zechariah, there is no further confirmation, there is no miracle that immediately follows. We're just left there being unpopular, odd, laughed at. This is a reality of the world we live in, isn't it? You can really stand out like a sore thumb as somebody who puts God's word first. You have to have a good reason not to conform in the staff room at work, in family gatherings. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Some of you do, some of you are nodding. It comes down to a very simple formula. Putting the word of God first, you say X, God says Y, I'm going with Y. Very simple in theory. Quite difficult to put into practice. But you go through the teaching of Jesus, you go through the teaching of Scripture, and it echoes a very basic formula. People will be at odds with you. They will say different things. They will expect you to do different things. Do not be conformed to this world. We, we have this, you, shall be the, you are the salt of the earth. And we do various things with that famous verse. What it's about is being distinctive. If salt loses its saltiness... It is nothing. It is rubbish. It is thrown out. Salt has value. Not because it makes, it's not about being tasty. It's about having that saltiness. It's not about making things nice. Salt, if salt is that, you, you detect it. And it's about, as God's people, being distinctive and not just blending in. You say X, God says Y, I'm going with Y. And when you're on your own, when you're in a tiny minority, that's emotionally tough. But Jesus calls us to that. The thing is, you know, go back one. The thing is, that formula is also true for the Muslim extremists that attack Charlie Hebdo. It's the same formula. You guys think this, believe this, do the other. We say. What you're doing is forbidden by God. God does not permit such things. The outrageous cartoons you're producing mean you're worthy of death and therefore we will act accordingly. It's the same formula. There's a lot of talk going on at the moment precisely about people acting according to their beliefs and how freedom of speech and freedom of behaviour and security, and how all these things fit together. Conversations are being had in lots of locations, lots of situations. One of the things that's being said is, oh, these people weren't believers, they were just criminals. Well, yeah, they were criminals. But they were not just criminals. There really are faith-based terrorists operating. People who, whose minds are shaped by this. You say X, God says that, I'm going with that. Um, I've got a quote here which was on Channel 4 uh, in July. This is Mariam, British-born, London accent. She was in Syria to join the jihad. And she says, I couldn't find anyone in the UK who was willing to sacrifice their life in this world for the life in the hereafter. 
I prayed and Allah ruled that I came here, Syria, to marry Abu Bakr. You need to wake up and stop being scared of death. We know that there's a heaven and a hell. And at the end of the day, Allah's going to question you. Instead of sitting down and focusing on your families or your study, you just need to wake up because the time is ticking. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Now, I don't know the individual. The reporter doesn't know the individual. She may not be giving a a balanced story of her background. We don't know how authentic that is. Whether it's true, she had never met anyone who set pleasing God and setting the hereafter above comforts in this world. That she'd never met anybody willing to lay down their life. Words that Jesus used. Lay down their life for the sake of God, for the sake of eternity. That's quite interesting, isn't it? If she had met somebody who believed that but never spoke it, never acted on it, how would she know? But when it comes to talking about um, faith causing people to break ranks and do something really different, at the moment it's the Muslims that come to mind. We're not in competition. But it brings up in this secular environment that we live all kinds of questions. It brings things into conversation that people don't normally talk about. And how do we, as Christians, respond? It is right to put the word of God first and the will of God first. Secularists will not agree with us. People who are secular will say, well, you know, it's all right to believe in God and have faith, but it's private matter. You do that in your own private corner like a hobby. They're wrong. They really are wrong. The Muslim extremists understand that putting God first is right. And in that, they are correct. But they are wrong about what God is like, what he wants, what his priorities are. The problem with the extremists who are being talked about all the time, along with conservative Muslims who are not extremists, and indeed anybody who's following it, the problem is that they don't know the truth about God. Not that they recognise that God's word should go first. Do you follow what I mean? I realise I'm opening so many cans of worms. I hope you enjoy picking through the worms afterwards. I have only got a few minutes... But these are things that we need to be talking about, we need to be discussing. And people around us will be talking about them, especially if, as seems likely, there are more attacks. How these things fit together. Do we speak up? In that prophecy of Zechariah, he refers refers to salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I don't know if Zechariah understood how God was going to fulfill that. But almost nobody did. Because the standard way of delivering from enemies is meeting violence with more violence. It's meeting force with greater force. And Jesus came as the Messiah in weakness. He went around forgiving people. He attained his victory through self-sacrifice. And nobody expected it. The fullest revelation of God is found in Christ. And neither the militant Muslims nor the moderate Muslims have got a hold of this. 
This is how God shows what he's like. You look at the life of Christ. Not just some words that you take out of context, but you look at his life and how he lived, the choices he made, how God's purpose was fulfilled through self-sacrifice and resurrection, how he challenged the secular authorities, the religious authorities, customs, human nature. The whole mystery of the cross is so counterintuitive. And that is the, the lens through which we look at God and his will and his purposes. And it's extraordinary and it's mysterious. But it's not easy in a, an angry environment where people are talking about these things to say, well, the trouble with the Muslims is they don't know what God is really like because God is wonderful. God does not instruct us to do this. That's, you know, and then, well, what do you know? Who are you? But if we don't speak, who will? We believe in better, I hope. We have this extraordinary revelation of God in Christ the person, not just in the book. Books can be taken out of context. Well, human beings are able to take anything out of context. The fullest revelation of God we have is in Christ, who is also alive and able to communicate with us. Um, If we believe in better, what will we do about it? You get young people from this country who pack their bags and go off to Syria and Iraq and all the rest of it and you think, this is crazy, why are they doing that? Well, there's a certain logic there. But what I come back to is if they believe so passionately in something that is wrong and destructive, what should we be doing who have got a a mighty, inspiring truth? We just sort of keep it private and stroke it like a hamster or something? There's a, there's a challenge to be drawn from it rather than just despair at what others are doing and judging them. Actually, we be- I didn't know they were going to do this, but they, um, Alan quoted, was it um, Will that quoted C.T. Studd's famous motto, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make to him. Make for him. There's a core gospel truth in there. If we believe in better what we should do, we should commit ourselves to trusting God. Because so often, we keep our heads down, we do not act according to what God has said, we do not risk being exposed in front of the crowd, because we're not trusting. Trusting God and then speaking and acting accordingly, knowing that we will be misunderstood and resisted. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus expected his followers to be misunderstood, resisted, rejected. It's par for the course. If we've got this idea that Christian life is smooth, specifically in the relation to uh, relating to other people, we're not reading the book right. We have all sorts of you know, illnesses and difficulties and employment issues, but the challenges that Jesus highlights are those we will meet from people. As British Christians, what we often do is we assert our right to think in a certain way, to believe in a way. But the scripture commands us, advises us, models for us, speaking and acting in that way too. We believe in better. And some of you are already there, but we might be wrong. I don't mean wrong on the big picture level, but any specific thing. God has shown me this. 
But how can I be dogmatic about it? How can I dare to tell everybody, this is what God wants me to do? Especially if it's your parents, or your boss, or whatever, telling you to do something, and you say, well, God says I can't do that. And one of the issues we had years ago was travelling out to Africa to a place like Chad with young children and parents saying, how can you take our grandchildren there? God is sending us, he's going to take care of them. They didn't believe in God. That was a difficult, tense, emotional thing. And I meet other families in similar situations today. And in our different situations with families, with peers, with work situations... That challenge of doing the Elizabeth and sticking to what God has said, even though nobody else understands it. It's a challenge, isn't it? But what happens if we get it wrong? We acknowledge our fallibility and make ourselves accountable to others. One of the core values of the gospel is we are all sinners. We all get it wrong. And there's this marvellous, humbling stream that runs through. God places us in churches and in fellowships so that we'll be accountable to each other. And we know we can get things wrong, so we test things. And we should, you know, if you're insecure, you want to assert things, you need to let go of that and relax into being fallible. We are more fallible than we know, and yet we can be at peace in that and confident in that because God is good. In 1 Thessalonians, do not put out the Spirit's fire, do not treat prophecies with contempt. And the scripture affirms that God can speak directly to us. Test everything. Yeah, even prophecies. Even God has said this. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. This is such a wonderful you know, snippet. And yeah, we should be bold speaking for God, but at the same time, test everything we think God is saying. Test it with our friends. Test it through the lens of, does this conform with the character, life, example, and teaching of Jesus? It's all there. Big can of worms, but well worth working through. Affirm the goodness of God. In a world where people are blaming God for all sorts of things, To stand out from the crowd and say, actually, God is good, and he does love us. And we don't understand everything, but he's calling us to live a particular way, to forgive, to trust him when it's dangerous, and all these different things. And nicely, kindly, graciously stand up for the goodness of God and tell our story. How will people know otherwise? Colossians verses uh, 4, verse 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, unbelievers. It addresses the situation. Make the most of every opportunity. We're not so good at that. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. There's a sort of back-ended promise there, that if you're committed to speaking in that kind of way, you will know how to answer I'm sure there's a whole life of learning that can go in on that. We all meet the strident Christian who is embarrassing. And we don't want, we don't want to be strident and judgmental or whatever it is, insensitive. But that's not a reason for chickening out completely. Elizabeth didn't answer rudely. She just affirmed, his name is John. Zechariah backed her up and uh, you know, it all turned out nicely. Often it doesn't, we don't get the backup. But it's still right to do, isn't it? 
Finally, as I said earlier, befriend Muslims. Muslim people are in such conflict at the moment. It's an application of, of what this passage says about being wise in the way we speak to outsiders. Muslims are coming to Christ as never before. Muslims are being radicalised as never before. There's a whole turmoil going on. God is working in a particular way at this time. and it, it's, I, I wish all of you the privilege of sharing in that, of befriending Muslims, listening to them, not presuming to tell them what Islam is or isn't, and what good Muslims are or not, and not commending them for being wishy-washy but rather demonstrating by word and example the radical gospel of Christ. This is what God is like. This is how God wants people to live. This is light in darkness, as Zechariah referred to. Those living in darkness, you'll see a great light. The defeat of those who hate us is about living in love and forgiveness and living by faith, not by fear. It's a big complicated thing and I'm just touching on it. Do go ahead, dig deeper into it, read the scriptures and cry out to God that we might be fully mature in Christ and put into practice what he himself has modelled. Amen?